Hello and welcome to this week's Inside Business and Technology podcast. I'm Tom Lyons. Uh, today I'm joined by Simon Carswell in Washington, Derek Scally in Berlin, and here in studio we have our own Chris Johns. Uh, Simon, I'm going to start with you and a story you have uh, on the front page of the Irish Times business section today about the US Congress and how it's being urged to prevent tax inversions uh, at, a, at a US Senate Financial Committee. Can you take me through what, what exactly is going on there? Well, there's a lot of concern being expressed in Washington, um, primarily by the Obama administration and by members of Congress, um, both on the Democratic and the Republican side. It must be said, though, most of it's coming from Democrats. And the concern is, is that a lot of U.S. multinationals are choosing to shift their global headquarters, their, their tax and um, legal tax address. Uh, to foreign countries through acquisitions or mergers, um, whereby an American company would take over a foreign company, and as part of that transaction, the U.S. company would shift its head office address uh, for tax purposes to the to the overseas country. And the reason they're doing this, as well as for business reasons, to in, uh, to to um, develop their business and to become an enlarged company, they're also doing it. And the main reason seems to be uh, for tax reasons that by shifting their head office from the U.S. to overseas, they're avoiding the high rate of corporation tax in the U.S., which is charged at a rate of 35%, and moving to a much lower rate, for example, to Ireland in some cases, to avail of the 12.5% uh, corporation tax rate or to a, a tax rate of closer to 20% in places like um, the U.K. and Switzerland and in the Netherlands as well. And uh, the recent acceleration, the recent increase in the number of what they call corporate Corporate inversions, that's what the transaction is known as. Um, that's led to a lot of concern in Congress that um, there's more of these companies moving uh, and Congress wants to try and stop it. Um, proposals have been made by Democratic senators and congressmen to introduce legislation to limit this, um, to stop these companies moving overseas. And you have Republicans expressing concern, well, we know it's a problem, but we don't want to put our American companies at, the, at a disadvantage, a competitive disadvantage against foreign rivals or create something that would make them vulnerable from foreign takeovers by uh, countries overseas. So uh, the main problem that the U.S. Congress has is is they can't really agree on anything. So as something as difficult as comprehensive tax reform, it's very difficult to have to try and deal with this problem when when lawmakers on Capitol Hill can, can agree on very little. And uh, Simon, we saw, you know, there, there's a one uh, classic example of, the, of, of this type of um, tax arrangement when we saw um, a Minnesota firm called Medtronic uh, acquire uh, Covidian, which is based here in Ireland, for uh, $42.9 billion. I mean, these are very, very big sums. I mean, how important do you think the committee is taking this? And do you think it really wants to, to produce an action, actions at the end of it? Well, I think they really do want to. The Senate Finance Committee had a hearing yesterday on this issue, and again, it's it's been it's been rumbling on for several weeks now, several months. Um, and then just this this uh, just late last week, it was announced the Abvi um, transaction with Shire, which is Dublin-based, and uh, it would involve the takeover of the U.S. company taking over the Dublin-based company and reincorporating in the U.K. And that's that's an even bigger transaction. That's fifty-three billion dollars. So again, uh, the congressmen and senators uh, have made a clear that when not a week goes by where there, is, uh, there isn't a transaction um, taking place in a corporate inversion, which has seen a U.S. multinational shifting its 
head office overseas, and they want to um, they want to stop this. And there's a lot of fighting talk on Capitol Hill about lost American jobs. And the Obama administration has come out and stirred up an economic patriotism debate. Uh, you had the U.S. Treasury Secretary Jack Lew coming out and writing to Congress saying there needs to be urgent leg- legislation to shut down this tax abuse that's going on. So they're very keen to do something about it. Uh, how they will go about fixing it is the problem. And there doesn't seem to be any real consensus as to how they will go about doing that. And Chris, if I can bring, Chris Johns, if I can bring you in there, uh, the U.S. Congress said that this was a race to the bottom tax competition. Uh, Do you think that that's a fair description of of what's going on in Ireland? And uh, how do you think this story is going to evolve next? What they're worried about is that the, the, the solution to this problem for them is to cut their tax rate, which is that race that they're referring to. And then if they do that, somebody else will cut again. And that's the race to the bottom that they fear. Because that would solve the problem for them if they had a a lower tax rate. Um, As I say, the worry is that then that that would just spark other people to cut cut their rates. Tax arbitrage is as old as the hills. You know, we used to um, hear about something called transfer pricing over many years. That still goes on. This is a new form of tax arbitrage. Um, People are becoming more clever, more informed, are better able to do it. But one of the reasons why they're able to do it is because this is in part about intellectual property which is much easier to shift around in terms of, you know, bits and bytes over the internet. It's not, the transfer pricing was always about physical goods. Um, This is now more about intellectual property, which makes the task of figuring out where it was originated, um, where do the patent royalties actually lie, and where do the final sales come from. This is very murky stuff now, and uh, I think Congress is, is, is going to be very, very challenged to come up with a workable, practical solution, given that it doesn't seem to be able to do that in any other area that it's working in at the moment. To try and um, reform this in a way that actually gets the result that they want, I think, is, 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 a, is a big, big task. And you, would you agree with that, Simon? I mean, when you're listening, I mean, is it all very technical, uh, particularly these arguments around IP and where, where, where do people come up with ideas in the first place? Well, I think the issue of Congress is that they recognize that there's real problems with the American text code. It's, it's deeply complex, and it's not very competitive on an international level. Um, I mean, the, the hearing heard yesterday that uh, a committee was told that the U.S. corporation tax rate is among the highest of the OECD countries. So clearly the U.S. is trailing a lot of what other countries are doing. Uh, and it was actually also said during the hearing, they said, well, you know, how the U.K. responded to something similar that was happening to U.K. companies moving to Ireland, uh, shifting their headquarters to Ireland. And they were told that the U.K. Uh, reduced their, their corporation tax rate to um, to, to stop companies moving moving overseas and to stop this. So that's really what the U.S. needs to do. The other issue for the U.S is that um, the tax system, the tax regime, the way it works here in America is that they tax companies on worldwide income, which is why a lot of companies seek to set up overseas subsidiaries and why the likes of Apple have such large sums of money um, warehoused in Irish companies. Uh, Chris is right. This isn't a new phenomenon. This has been going on for years. In fact, uh, Congressman Sandy Levin, one of, the, uh, one of the politicians leading the charge against these inversions, he released a report earlier this month in which he said that the 76 U.S. corporations had moved their tax domiciles overseas, and that includes 47 in the past decade. But most of those have taken place since 2008, which is why Congress uh, needs to act. Uh, I don't think it's a terribly technical issue. Uh, congressmen and senators recognize that it's a very simple issue. They have a problem with their tax code and they need to fix it. But again, it's so difficult to get anything done here in Washington because of the deeply partisan 
uh, Congress. Uh, Democrats control the Senate, Republicans control the House, and in that division, really, there's nothing being decided and, and, and no uh, resolutions being agreed on between the parties. And Derek Scally, just to bring you in there, I mean, how do you think this is being viewed in Germany and Berlin? I mean, I presume that they'd be broadly in line with the US Congress in thinking that, you know, Ireland needs to be squeezed squeezed on this particular matter. Yes, indeed. I mean, I've spoken to high-ranking um, finance ministry officials involved in the OECD debate, and they said it's very important that Ireland realises that the wind has changed. In the past, whenever Germans would uh, raise the red flag and say Ireland wasn't playing fair on tax, Ireland could basically say, well, you don't understand our economic development in the last years and so on. And they said, well, we do understand that now, but what you need to understand now is that the game has changed and this sense of that unfair tax competition uh, that horse is bolted. You, you, you can't, you can't expect to uh, be able to get away with this forever. So you might as well just renegotiate while there is a chance, or it will be renegotiated without you. So that's very much the attitude uh, in the in the. Uh, in the German corridors of power. I mean, there are still people in the Social Democrats who, who are back in the old days when they just sort of argued that Ireland's, Ireland is just isn't playing fair and it's, they're luring companies you know, to, to Ireland and, and so on. But the, the, the Christian Democrats, Angela Merkel's party, they're very, very pragmatic on this. They say, well, look, that's what you do in business. And uh, competition is, 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 is good to a certain extent. But they've said, look, with the Germans and the US, we have, we're on a new page and it's time Ireland realizes where we and Chris, just turning to, to, to your economics column this week, uh, it begins, patience, we are often told, is a virtue. Uh, you're, you're linking patience and economic growth. Uh, can you take us through what are the key points you're making? Sure. Um, economic growth, a lot of people are very surprised to learn, is actually a very recent phenomenon historically. Um, to the extent that we know about human existence and we have any data, for the first million years of human existence, to the extent that we go back to Neanderthals, and there wasn't any growth, no growth at all. Um, it only really picked up in the Middle Ages and um, then in a very, very small, very tiny way. Um, to all intents and purposes, economic growth is a phenomenon of the last two centuries. Stone Age man all the way through to the Industrial Revolution, average GDP per capita around the world went up and down, but mostly went up and down and didn't grow over time. And something happened 200, 250 years ago that led to growth occurring in a sustainable way. And that is the development of investment in both financial markets and real solid um, actual physical capital formation. And the way in which that happens is that we have to defer spending today to generate our economic future. That's what saving is. That's deferring what spending our money today on ourselves and not sticking it in a hole in the ground, but putting it to use so that what is generated in the future is what we consume. Um, and uh, one of the things that's happened over the last while is that we've noticed that countries that save more over time tend to grow more. Um, uh, somewhat controversially, some scholars have noticed that Protestant countries with their work ethic and their saving ethos tend to grow more than Catholic countries that tend to have less of a saving ethos, uh, more of an instant gratification. And as I say, that's, that's somewhat controversial. But if you think about the Asian development model, the Chinese are the epitome of patience in terms of thinking about things long term. And they have been investing and investing in a big way now for nearly three decades. And their economy is growing as a result. 
One of the concerns that we have at the moment is that growth is very hard to come by around the in, in industrialized world. And, you know, Europe is struggling still. The U.S., can, you know, in the first quarter had a massive negative quarter. The IMF have told us that at the end of this week, growth around the world, their forecasts for this year are going to be downgraded. And I don't think we should be surprised by this. There's lots of things going on, the debt overhang, the financial crisis and all the rest of it. But the fact is, for the last 10 years, we haven't been doing very much investing. And we're not doing very much now. We're not being very patient, to go back to your original question. And I think it's a real concern that, you know, the only reason why economies grow sustainably over the long term is investment. And we're not doing nearly enough of it in almost all of the economies that we look at, particularly here in Ireland. Now, there are lots of reasons for that. We haven't got any money. It's a very good reason. But um, ironically, um, if you look at Europe as a whole, which isn't investing either, um, the cost of borrowing, the cost of investing is now at all time multi-generation lows. The markets are falling over themselves to lend us money to invest, and we're not doing it. And uh, Chris, Ireland, you know, we're a Catholic country, not a, not like not like not say not big savers like the Germans. Uh, how do you view Irish investment at the moment? I mean, we don't have a lot of uh, of wriggle room. Uh, yeah, saving actually is quite high in Ireland at the moment. But the, the, the reason for that is that people are paying off debts. And, that, and to the extent that they're not paying off debts, they're basically putting money into the bank and they're not putting it to work. So there is cash out there. You'd probably be surprised at how much there is actually, but, um, but it's not being put to work. Um, we're not um, investing nearly enough in things like our infrastructure um, you know, our public sector infrastructure clearly is, is not growing because of the, the, the austerity that's been, that, we, that we do have for very obvious reasons. Um, and it's, it's a real problem that can only be solved at a European level, actually. I mean, the Irish problem is that we're just fundamentally cash constrained, particularly in the public sector. But if Europe, you know, was more imaginative about its growth issues, it would figure out that the way to do it is to get capital spending going at the pan-European level because... European agencies could borrow vast amounts of money at next to no cost at the moment. That's what those low bond deals that we read about every day mean. And we could start building, for example, public sector housing again. We have the shortages that people talk about. Where there are obvious needs in, in, in terms of our public sector infrastructure is, very, is, is something that is crying out for an imaginative pan-European response. Now, people talk about it a bit, but it's, we could do an awful lot more. And Chris, you, you pick out the UK um, as one c- country that you think that the, we could see growth in. Uh, why do you think that they're different from, say, from say other countries? They've astonished everybody this year um, in terms of their overall growth rate. Um, if you look at what the IMF, I mentioned them earlier on, downgrading their forecasts globally this year, the IMF are upgrading their UK growth forecasts, as indeed are everybody else, because everybody got the UK wrong. Um, it's grown. It's going to be the fastest G7 economy this year and probably next year as well. Um, and one of the equally astonishing facts about the UK in all of this is that their unemployment rate is collapsing. Their employment rate is at close to an all-time historic high in, in the UK. It's, it's, a, it's, it's an unsung and totally surprising success story. And one of the things that the IMF expects uh, in 2015 is, is a very rapid pickup in capital spending. And uh, there's no reason to disagree with the IMF on this. And that's part of this wider UK success story, um, which, which, as I say, has come as, come as a big surprise to a lot of people. But, it, it, you know, one of the things that happens to economies is that growth begets growth. And if you look historically at why and when capital spending, saving investment takes place, it's usually 
um, both, it correlates very well with, with, the, with the economic cycle. So that when an economy does well, people feel better, um, their, their animal spirits rise, and, and they tend to save and invest more. When people are risk-averse, they're worried, they're concerned, they just don't know what the heck is going to happen next, they tend to just hunker down and not take the risks that investing actually involve. In the UK at the moment, everybody's happy to take a risk. And Derek, to bring you in, uh, like how do you see things from a German perspective in terms of investment and what Chris is saying about about saving and, and growth and, and the outlook for the next sort of year to two years? Well, it's interesting what Chris mentions because uh, an economic institute here in Berlin, the DIW, um, rang, have been sort of have put up this flag for several years now, and they put out an interesting paper uh, earlier this month where they said we need to come up with a new European institution that can raise money cheaply and create uh, generate the kind of uh, infrastructure investment that that we need around Europe, even in Germany. I mean, the supposedly uh, purring German economy. I mean, the infrastructure here is. Quite crumbling bridges, motorways, all those things you need to invest in for the future. They haven't been invested in, in, in 20 years in Western Germany. A lot of the money has been going into the East. So this uh, Economic Institute put out a very interesting paper, which is available in English, uh, which you might be able to link to. And it, um, it says, yes, we need to invest, but we need to borrow at good rates. And we can only do that if we pool our resources. Um, the, the concept uh, went down like a lead balloon in Berlin because it sounds a bit like uh, previous concepts of pooling sovereign debt and uh, Germany is uh, very wary of uh, pooling anything more than it has to in this uh, single currency time. So um, there hasn't been a lot of take-up on the idea, but it, it seemed quite sensible, and it'll be interesting if it gets any play outside of Germany. And uh, um, one, uh, Derek, one of the, the, the great uh, companies um, is, is Aldi, which has managed to grow in good times and in bad, and it seems to be able to work out how to, when to save money and when to invest. Uh, its uh, co-founder, Carl Albrecht, uh, died this year or on Wednesday or at the age of 94. Uh, can you just tell us a little bit about him? Uh, it's, it's such a well-known brand, but most people wouldn't know that much about the, the people who put it together. No, and that's exactly the way they wanted it. Um, Karl and Theo Albrecht, and they were born in 1920 and 1924, respectively. They um, they set up the company, and um, they, their parents start, started it about 100 years ago as a, as a grocery store. But uh, in the 1950s, they started this um, Albrecht discount, Aldi concept, and that was revolutionary at the time. The goods were taken out from behind the counter. There was a limited selection. Um, prices were low. Um, the store were very plain and the savings were passed on to customers and this became a, a runaway success in post-war Germany where money was tight and over the decades they've successfully built up the operation since 1999 it's been in Ireland and um, it's become a huge success there uh, eating away at uh, the market share of established operators together with its German competitor Lidl um, latest figures suggest uh, Aldi in Ireland has around 8% market share which is quite extraordinary um, and it's its uh, concept it has been modified slightly in Ireland. It's slightly more upmarket. It offers more fresh food, and it pushes its uh, its greenness uh, to a far greater extent than it would push its Germanness in, in Germany. But the, basically, the DNA is the same, and that goes right back to these founder brothers. And they basically turned frugality and thrift into uh, a business and life philosophy. Um, extraordinary people, a bit like Ingvar Kamprad, the, the founder of um, 
of uh, IKEA, just extraordinary men who sort of suffered through several collapses in wealth in Germany. They, behind their, the counter of their parents' shop in the 20s, they would have seen uh, hyperinflation uh, at its worst. Um, they saw Essen, there, where they grew up and where they lived all their lives uh, destroyed again. So they've seen wealth destroyed several times over, and they realize that frugality has its, uh, that money is, is hard to come by, and people are, can always be convinced, uh, as Carl Albrecht said, if you, if you convince them that you have the lowest price, you'll always get them. But the revolution was not just the lowest price, but he says if we cut out all the, all the rubbish in between, in Germany they call it the schnickschnack, uh, if you cut out all that, you can still offer high quality at a low price. And, um, and high quality and low price uh, is the, the Aldi principle, and that is what has uh, turned them into such a, such a worldwide concern, around 10,000 stores uh, from, from Dublin to Sydney. And Derek, you mentioned there that you know this was a philosophy and a lifestyle. I mean, are you are you saying that these fabulously wealthy brothers, you know, Carl was, has an estimated fortune of twenty one billion dollars, that they they didn't really enjoy it and they didn't have you know yachts or, or private jets or that type of thing? No, exactly. I mean, uh, literally, like Ingvar Kampfert, they just realized money was a means to an end. It wasn't. As somebody I once spoke to a few years ago, he says, this generation of German uh, millionaires, um, billionaires, they sort of enjoy not spending the money the way Russian oligarchs enjoy spending money. It's, um, it's almost fetishizing not spending money. You could argue it goes too far, and uh, there have been con- controversies over the years of squeezing suppliers, uh, particularly Lidl has gotten into trouble in Germany over that. But suppliers have always said, look, um, we've we've always had a very good uh, dealings with with Aldi. They're considered very fair to deal with, tough to negotiate with. But once you have a contract, they stick to their terms of their contract. So um, the the obituary is all very honourable, considering how tough an operator they were. In a very con- uh, they basically revolutionised German retail and turned it into a very price conscious market, sort of tapping tapping into the Germans. Uh, uh, Price—it's uh, it, like a chicken and egg situation where Germans always price conscious, or did Al, did Aldi make them price conscious? But either way, it's—it's uh, it's, it's a huge success story, and all of the obituaries have been very fair and saying that Karl Albrecht—he created uh, a revolution. He—he he earned 20 billion, but he actually gave away a lot of it quietly, very privately. And the two brothers were pretty much recluses. There were only a handful of pictures of them existed. So um, very enigmatic, but uh, apparently very honourable men. And Chris, would you view? Do you think you know in an economy is it better that we have you know the richer like are like these two men, uh, very low profile, running cost efficient businesses, or is it better that you know maybe they're the more high spending types, getting out there, employing lots of people on their yachts, uh, flying in and out on private jets, you know, getting getting money flowing? You need both. And the thing is, at the moment, we've swung far too much into um, not enough patience and saving and thinking about the future. Um, it, might, it might sound slightly paradoxical given these austere times, but we have too much current spending and not enough capital spending. We, have, we don't have enough people thinking about the future in the way these German guys did and, and indeed still do. I mean, the wider German success, success story is because they do think long term. They plan for it and they save and invest accordingly. Um, in the West, um, we're not doing nearly enough of that. The Chinese do it a lot. So, yeah, it's always about balance. It's always about making sure that, you, you know, economies need spending. They need people to spend money on yachts and, and, and uh, airplanes. But you do not need economy. Economies dominated by oligarchs end up looking like Russia. And Simon, just to, to bring you in just quick, 
briefly, uh, just in terms of the Aldi and the little business model, uh, has that had an influence in America in, in terms of American retail? I mean, do you see stores similar to theirs or, or have they developed differently? Well, Aldi is in parts of the States. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, the, the low cost model is very popular. It, you see it more and more in places like, uh, in areas like uh, clothes retailing. Although in food re- retailing, Costco is very popular, which is kind of a wholesaler that people sign up as a member to and can buy bulk, uh, bulk uh, produce in for a very low cost. Uh, the likes of clothes retailing, you know, the Target and Old Navy um, sell clothes for, for next to nothing in their stores and again very large warehouses very similar to um, uh, the, 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 um, the mass retailers uh, and you're, you're finding that um, there's more competition in that area for example uh, Primark is trying to now move into the North American market they've uh, they announced plans to set up their first uh, US outlet in Boston uh, again people are watching that closely to see whether it would take off given that the market is pretty well served by the likes of of Target and Walmart and Kmart, um, which produce and sell clothes pretty cheaply to customers. I just go back to a point that Chris made on investment in infrastructure, and also that uh, Derek made in, uh, on infrastructure investment and the lack of it in Germany. Uh, this is an area that the U.S. is looking at, and it's actually tied to the whole issue of American multinationals with cash overseas. President Obama has proposed raising about $150 billion from new taxes on overseas operations of U.S. companies to try and get that money back to invest in what he wants to set up as a $300 billion four-year infrastructure plan to, to, um, to uh, revamp roads, bridges, and highways. And this is a real problem in the U.S. because the Highway Trust Fund, as it's called, is running low on cash and is continuously funded with uh, temporary measures by Congress. They're uh, on the verge of proposing another investment of about $10 billion to keep the fund invested. So there's a real problem with trying to invest money and finding money to invest to keep America's roads and highways in proper order. Um, there was one interesting proposal made by uh, Irish-American Congressman John Delaney, who uh, is from Maryland. He's proposed um, repatriating profits back from American multinationals overseas to set up an infrastructure bank that would fund investment, capital investment, to uh, to fund these uh, developments in roads and bridges across the state. So it's a problem, not just in Europe, but uh, but in the United States as well. Well, tax, spend or save, they are the big questions uh, for all economies. Uh, Simon Carswell in Washington, Derek Scally in Berlin and our own Chris Johns here in Dublin. Uh, thanks for coming on uh, this week's Inside Business and Technology podcast. And that's it for this week. I'm Tom Lyons and I'd like to thank my producer, Sinead O'Shea and sound engineer, James Davis. 